Good morning and welcome to the First Universalist Unitarian Church. My name is Brian Mason. and I'm the minister here in this congregation. I want to extend a special welcome to everyone joining us this morning online. Since 1870, this church has served as a vital voice for liberal religion here in central Wisconsin. We're an intentionally free society that welcomes all people just as you are, regardless of age, sexual orientation, ethnicity, or economic situation. Wherever you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. We are currently worshiping online only. Well, actually, this is our last Sunday for worshiping online only. So um, I guess I'll recommend stop by our website or stay tuned to your email, and we'll send out some information about our reopening, which will occur next Sunday, which is Easter Sunday, a wonderful day to reopen. But in any case, you should still subscribe to the church's newsletter, because Donica does a good job on those, and you should follow us on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. Do we have anything else? That's it. Okay, if you want to get any updates. I'm delighted this morning to be joined by Margaret Jurors and Donika Kozlovich, who have been here for more than a year with me, uh, recording and putting together these um, exclusively online services. I, I wish I could say it's bittersweet, but it's all sweet to bring this period of online only, hopefully, to the final end. And with that, dear friends, let us gather our hearts and minds for worship this morning. Please join me in reciting the church's chalice lighting if you're following along at home. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. You're welcome to join in singing our opening hymn, Morning is Broken. Let's go. 
Today's poem for all ages is Before I Was a Gazan by Naomi Shahab Nye. I was a boy and my homework is missing. Paper with numbers on it, stacked and lined. I was looking for my piece of paper, proud of this plus that, then multiplied, not remembering if I had left it on the table after showing to my uncle or the shelf after combing my hair, but it was still somewhere and I was going to find it and turn it in make my teacher happy, make her say my name to the whole class, before everything got subtracted in a minute, even my uncle, even my teacher, even the best math student and his baby sister who couldn't talk yet, and now I would do anything for a problem I could solve. to invite you now to join me in the spirit of prayer and meditation. If you're at home, I encourage you to take a seat in a comfortable chair, put both feet firmly on the ground and press down. Feel the earth supporting you below. If you're out on a walk listening to this service, maybe take a moment, become aware of all that's around you, and take a breath. And let us journey into silence with these words. Holy life, holy breath, holy mystery, be gracious to us. For the world is in distress, people waste away from grief, soul, and body. Too many lives are spent with sorrow, too many years with sighing. The strength of many fails because of misery and their bones waste away. We pray for those who are the scorn of all their adversaries, a horror to their neighbors, an object of dread to their acquaintances. We pray for those who have passed out of mind as if they were already dead, for those who live like broken vessels with terror all around. But we trust in you, spirit of life. We trust that time is in your hand. Deliver people from the hand of their enemies and persecutors. We pray that goodness and grace will shine upon all creation and that wholeness and peace will be within us, among us, and around us. Now let us call to mind the joys and sorrows of our lives and let us meditate on them in silence together now. Amen.
This morning's reading is the poem entitled, What If?, by Malcolm Gweet. The poet writes, What if every word we say never ends or fades away, gathers volume, gathers way, drums and dins us with dismay, surges on some dreadful day when we cannot get away, whelms us till we drown? What if not a word is lost? What if every word we cast, cruel, cunning, cold, accursed, every word we cut and paste echoes to us from the past, fares and finds us first and last, haunts and hunts us down? What if every murmuration, every odious oration, every oath and imprecation, insidious insinuation, every blogger's aberration, every Facebook fabrication, every Twitter titivation, unexamined asservation, idiotic iteration, every facile explanation drags us to the ground? What if each polite evasion, every word of defamation, insults made by implication, querulous prevarication, compromise and convocation, propaganda for the nation, false or flattering persuasion, blackmail and manipulation, simulated desperation grows to such reverberation that it shakes our own foundation, shakes and brings us down. Better that some words be lost. Better that they should not last tongues of fire and violence, O word through whom the world is blessed. Word in whom all words are graced, do not bring us to the test. Give our claimant voices rest, and the rest is silence. Therein ends our reading.
Two weeks ago, a friend told me he's leaving not only his employer, but his profession, which he's been working at for more than a decade. I was floored because he's at the top of his game. A couple of years back, the mayor where he lives named him as one of the city's thought leaders. This led to TED Talks and radio and TV appearances. His Twitter followers went from family and friends to thousands around the world who looked to him for inspiration. This had to do with his abilities, but even he'd admit that most of it was tied to his profession and the celebrity created after the TED Talk. After all, the mayor wasn't picking grocery store managers. She was picking professionals from the city's most popular institutions. But he quit. His new job is outside of his field. After serving as the face of an institution, he's now behind the scenes in a supportive role. How are you? I asked. I wrongly assumed quitting had something to do with drama or worse. Instead, he said, I love the job. It was great. But I wanted something that keep me interested but left enough in the tank for family and friends. We decided to cut back rather than sprint forward. Barbara Cawthorn Crafton, an Episcopal priest, writes, We didn't even know what moderation was. We didn't know what it felt like. We didn't just work. We inhaled our jobs, sucked them in, became them. Stayed late, brought work home. It was never enough, though, no matter how much time we put in. She goes on to ask, when did the collision between our appetites and the needs of our souls happen? I sometimes wonder how well we really know the needs of our souls. Everyone is very good when it comes to our appetites. Most people I know tell themselves no only when they have to. Just think how Amazon has turned us into what the journalist Alec McGillis calls one-click America. Much of our lives are spent online, consuming, wrapped up in private spheres, and in return our hearts and minds, like our civic fabric, are tearing apart. But it's hard to get off this hamster wheel. An entire culture caters to our appetites. Even self-care has moved away from leisure and slowing down into a shallow, consumerist empire that peddles expensive tech and juice cleanses to 21st century white-collar workers. When what's really needed for self-care is simple, and it's here any time. After all, external goods that enrich our lives are trees and flowers and clouds and sacraments like nourishing meals and friends. Just ask the dying what truly enriched their lives if you want to know what really matters. That's what my friend is coming to terms with. Maybe it's a midlife crisis. Is he lucky? Yes, he is lucky. Not everyone gets a chance to remake themselves. But all of us can ask the question, what does my soul really need? Pushed to the limit, self-care becomes a kind of idolization. After all, if what you're focusing on is what you want and how you feel, then you've basically made an idol of yourself. And it's strange that we idolize ourselves because our viewpoints are so limited. Our lives are short, and the little corner of the world we live in is so tiny when you take the rest into account.
If we're not careful, self-care becomes just another way to avoid the pains of living. The Buddhist nun Pema Chodron says, and I quote, protecting ourselves from pain, our own and that of others too, has never worked. Everybody wants to be free from their suffering, but the majority of us go about it in a way that only makes things worse. Protecting ourselves from pain only makes things worse. If you want a primer on how to make things worse, I encourage you to sign up for a subscription to the Wausau Daily Herald. If you already have one, then you've probably noticed a theme lately. The theme is one of overwork and exhaustion. Teachers, parents, pastors, truck drivers, tugboat captains in the Suez Canal, everyone's working like a dog, and many people not only bring their work home, but literally many people work from home. I was in the waiting room at a hospital the other day at a time when a group of teachers from a local high school were there getting their COVID shots. I overheard, or maybe I was eavesdropping a little bit, as I heard them sharing how now that they're teaching students in person and online, they were now spending every single Sunday grading papers and getting ready for next week. So yes, our work has sucked us in. In some ways, we've become our jobs. But what about our appetites? Just consider that today, you can now get booze delivered to your doorstep here in Wisconsin thanks to a recent piece of legislation. Thank you, legislators. Meanwhile, kids are failing in school and are malnourished. People released from prison in Wisconsin have nowhere to go. But thankfully, legislators, we can now get PBR delivered to our door in 20 minutes or less. Our pills, our booze, our houses overfilled with more than two times the stuff we need. 11, 11 hours a day is the average amount of time we spend with our heads bowed in prayer-like devotion to our glowing screens. I have this theory that after human beings are all dead and aliens land on earth, they'll research us just like we do the Romans, and I bet they'll write papers about the rectangular gods we slept with, we went to the bathroom with, we got all of our answers from and reached for at the start of every single day. When it comes to our phones, we've basically become the character Gollum from The Lord of the Rings. We caress our phones like they're tiny baby kittens, and we whisper, my precious. So yes, our appetites can be destructive. I sometimes wonder if overwork and infinite appetites are really just two sides of the same coin. The question is, who's in charge of our overwork and appetites? Is it us? Is it really us? Or have these things become mighty monsters that whisper orders to us? Our schedules drive us, our work, possessions, our hungers. I don't think we drive them, I think they drive us. Is this what we really want? Is this what we're made for? Is this what we dream for our children? Haven't you ever had a moment when questions like these grab hold of you? Say, for instance, you're awake early in the quiet morning and all this entitlement and comfort, the obsession with being seen as a busy, hard worker 
as a busy parent or whatever you're caught up with and felt just a bit uneasy. It's a crummy feeling. I know this from experience. I didn't like it, but I learned from it. I didn't like it because it makes me feel weak and spineless. Nobody wants to give in to these doubts because we all want to feel competent and important. I have a friend of mine who's nearly 90 years old, and he recently told me that one of his struggles is wanting to be needed like he was when he worked, even though he believes in his heart that he is a child of God and that he's a father, a husband, a grandfather, and that that's enough in what truly matters. But he still has an appetite to see his name on the marquee, even in the golden years. The messages we get are that being overworked is how it's supposed to be. It gives us something to complain and also something to brag about. We look around and measure ourselves against others, and then contempt rises up to our ears. We scroll on our phones and see people smiling on vacations better than ours, with living rooms nicer than ours, with cars nicer than ours, and selfies better than ours. Even when no one else is around, even without having a conversation with anyone, we get angry at people. We compare ourselves to others and put them down at the exact same time. Don't pretend like you don't do it. Even the ancients did this. Why else would the Ten Commandments tell us not to covet our neighbor's stuff? And sure, comparison can motivate us, but as Teddy Roosevelt said, it's also the thief of joy. We know we shouldn't work ourselves to death. We know we shouldn't overdo self-care with indulgence. We know we shouldn't spend 11 hours a day on our screens, but we do. This wrestling probably has something to do with the tendency we have to say one thing and literally do the opposite in the next moment, which brings us to the heart of what I want to talk about today, and that's Palm Sunday. Now, you'd be forgiven for not knowing what Palm Sunday is, as it's increasingly unobserved in churches, which is unfortunate. It's unfortunate because it's a story that teaches me something every time I read it. The last time I celebrated Palm Sunday was back when I was an intern minister at the First Unitarian Church of St. Louis. I ordered palms and the whole nine yards— I got a kick watching everyone walk into the sanctuary, awkwardly holding massive green palms, wondering what on earth they were supposed to do with these stupid things. And just as the prelude started, I spotted two older men. They were absolute pillars in the church, and they were out in the narthex, and they had challenged each other to a duel, wielding their palms as if they were swords. Nobody could see this terrific battle but me, these two old men looked like little boys giggling as one of them bettered the other. The poor victim, he clutched his heart, and the swashbuckler dramatically fell to his fake death. Thankfully, they didn't put their eyes out, and they safely got to the seats beside their wives, who were completely unaware of the terrific battle their husbands had to endure to be there that morning. And there's really two parts to Palm Sunday— the first part of Palm Sunday is Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. Jesus famously rides a donkey into town. He doesn't ride a mighty horse like warriors and kings. Instead, he rides a donkey, 
Riding a donkey, even back then, is about as cool as someone who drove the family minivan to prom. But even so, everyone rolls the ancient equivalent of the red carpet out for him. Why were ancient red carpets palm branches? Nobody has any idea why they were palm branches. But have you ever stopped to ask yourself why red carpets are special to us? Nobody knows that either. They just are. So in the first part of Palm Sunday, everybody loves Jesus for all the work that he's been doing. He's been healing people for free. He's been feeding people for free. He's been giving free boat rides. He's been walking on water. All sorts of cool stuff. But in the second half of Palm Sunday, we have the Passion, which is when he's betrayed by his friends and all those people who had just moments ago rolled out the red carpet for him. The question is, why did they turn on him in an instant? The people turn on him because he won't do what they want him to do. He won't talk like they want him to talk. I want you to think about that for a minute. They said, perform more miracles. Turn five fish into two loaves into a meal for 5,000 again. Turn water into wine again. Give us free health care. Walk on water. Be who we want you to be. Do what we want you to do. Give us what we want. Get us drunk. Make life easy. And what's the answer they get? No is the answer they get. Instead of wowing them with another clever parable or a fantastic thing, he says, they, they need to love their neighbor. He says, you need to put others first. He said, you need to take better care of yourselves and you need to take better care of each other. And how did the people respond once they heard that they need to change their lives? How did they respond once they were told that they needed to look after each other? How did they respond when he said, you should stop being so selfish? They said, kill him. They said, if you're not going to fill our bellies, if you're not going to get us drunk and dazzle and surprise us, then we'll kill you. The crowd that had just welcomed him into town like a celebrity at the Oscars is now calling for his head. And even his best friends deny him, and one of them actually betrays and delivers him into the hands of killers. The whole story is just a few pages long, but it has a Ph.D. worth of psychological insight. For starters, it warns us that all of us are tortured at times, but that we can be torturers too. It shows us that we torture even those we love. It shows that for as important as food and water and shelter are, if inside we're remorseless, self-righteous, and driven only by outward success, what good is food really? If a child has a pantry filled with food but nobody in the house to love them, nobody to be tender with them, to accept them for who they are, they haven't got a chance at living a full life. If a young girl is shamed and belittled and mocked because she's attracted to other girls, if she's called names and beaten, what good are loaves and fishes? If we have full stomachs and drunken nights courtesy of immigrants who live in slums, how well can we really rest? You can ignore it. You can ignore all of this. But it doesn't make it go away. Ten 
gunned down in Boulder, Colorado, eight, gunned down in Atlanta, Georgia, the murder rate up 30% in 2020. Every day in the world, someone somewhere is living their own Palm Sunday. Most things don't get wrapped up in pretty little bows. That's what Palm Sunday wants us to remember. Palm Sunday wants us to ask what our souls really need. As Cawthorn Crafton asks, when did the collision between our appetites and the needs of our souls happen? Was there a heart attack? Did we get laid off from work, one of the thousands certified as extraneous? Did a beloved child become a bored stranger? A marriage fall silent and cold, or by some exquisite working of God's grace, did we just find the courage to look the truth in the eye and for once not blink? How did we come to know that we were dying a slow and unacknowledged death, and that the only way back to life was to set all our packages down and begin again, carrying with us only what we really needed? Palm Sunday asks us what we'd do if a Savior came to earth today. Humans have told this story over and over again. Read a comic book, watch Superman, read Dostoevsky, read or watch The Lord of the Rings. What does the Savior tell us every single time? Serve others, live simply, learn to appreciate the simple things your friends and family, the lilies of the field, the sparrows a new day dawning. Every single one of us were born naked, and every single one of us will go out naked. That's the truth of the matter. So when will you start carrying only what you need? Amen. Our closing hymn, As Though I May Speak with Bravest Fire,
Ellen Johnson Fay wrote, The offering is a sacrament of the free church. It is supported by the voluntary generosity of all who join with us. The mission and vision of the First Universalist Unitarian Church is made possible exclusively because of the generosity of our friends and members. I want to encourage you, if you haven't already, to stop by the church's website and click on the donate button. There are many ways you can be a part of this church's mission and vision. You can make a one-time gift or you can set up a recurring gift. I want to thank you in advance for your generosity and invite you to sing our doxology now. May the truth that sets us free and the hope that never dies and the love that cast out fear lead us forward together until the day spring breaks and all shadows flee away. Greeting fellow UUs. Jody Meyer here, your 2021 Board of Trustee President. I'm reaching out to thank you for your generosity in helping us achieve 90% of our annual budget stewardship drive. Your gifts help us keep the lights on, allowing all of us to focus on our mission. Considering the past year, we are very grateful for all that you have given to the UU. That said, 90% is not 100%, so I appeal to you to give 10% more if you are able. I know it is a big ask. Jobs have been lost. Hours have been cut. Futures are uncertain. Our family, all our families, are affected. I ask you because it is necessary that I do. If we fail to close the gap, we will need to revise the budget. We do have a contingency plan ready, but it will not make up a 10% gap. We will need to look deeper and make difficult, likely unpopular decisions. I prefer to avoid that future if I can. If you pledged $100, can you give another 10? If you pledged $1,000, can you provide another 100? My thought is, if we all can give some, and we all target 10% of our giving, we can close the gap together. For whatever you are able to do, my gratitude, my gratitude for your consideration. Peace with you, friend. Mm -hmm. 